Well, thank you, praise team. And I know you folks are excited about your new pastor, and I want you to know that I'm excited for you. And my wife is excited, too. And I hope that uh, you will love him, pray for him, support him, and I believe you will do that. Today, I believe that the Lord wants me to share with you some thoughts on the last days, and our text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. Now, to give you some background, first of all, in Greece today, there is a city that is called Thessaloniki. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who were residents of a city called Thessaloniki. And the topic that was on his heart because they were concerned, what is going to happen to those who love the Lord, who have died, what will happen to them? And he addresses that problem and that concern. And he begins with a declarative statement. In verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In the year 1942, it was a difficult year for the battles that were raging in the Pacific theater of World War II. The Japanese had advanced into the islands of the Philippines, and President Roosevelt ordered General MacArthur to retreat and go to Australia. And history tells us that before he left, he said, talking about General, uh, General MacArthur, he said, I will return. And two years later, in 1944, in October, he did return. And you probably remember that iconic photo of that general wading through the ways to get back to the island of the Philippines. Now, there was a time in our Lord's ministry when the disciples were concerned before they understood that before long our Lord would go to the cross and shed his blood. And before Jesus went to the cross on a night, he said to the disciples, I go away, but I want you to know I will come again. And throughout the pages of the New Testament, that theme that one day the Lord will come again is prominent. 
There are 260 verses in the New Testament. 260 chapters, excuse me. And there are over 300 references in those chapters to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, for every verse that refers to the birth of Christ, eight verses will say something about what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. However, in these last days, there have been periods where the passion for the second coming and the preaching about the second coming has not been as clear as it once was. Jesus made the promise that one day he would come again. And the teaching and the preaching of those apostles centered around that there will be a day in the plan of God and in the purpose of God when Jesus would come again. Dr. Wayne Ward was a prominent theologian and he taught at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. And this is a quote. He says, for years, many preachers have been treating the doctrine of the second coming of Christ with benign neglect. Any pastor who ignores the subject of the second coming invites confusion. In recent years, I believe there has been a new interest in the topic of the Lord's second coming. I hear preachers say often that I believe that we're living in the last days. And of course, some of you are saying, well, preachers have been talking about the last days for 2,000 years, and properly so. Because you see, when Jesus ascended into heaven, you remember our Lord went to the cross and for 40 days, he had what is called a post-resurrection ministry. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, that began the last days. The last days is kind of a theological term that has lasted for 2,000 years. Now, a little later, I want to get into that just a bit. But let me just say, this new interest in the second coming grows out of, it seems that we're living in a time when there's so much division. Division in our country, division in the church, division in politics, where it seems that things that we used to be foundationally true, things that we thought we could count on, are no longer those things that we feel are safe. And so in God's plan, he gives the church a declaration. And it says, for the Lord himself personally will come down from heaven and with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. The first time our precious Lord came, he came as a little baby placed in a manger in a place called Bethlehem. The next time we will find that the Lord will come, not as a baby, but as a king, as a commander, and the trumpet of God will mark his coming. 
a trumpet always gives, for the most part, a certain sound. It will not be a flute or any other weak-sounding instrument, but the Bible says the trumpet call of God. And what he will find when he comes is that there will be a host of people who will not expect it. In fact, I think we're living in a day when not only secularists, people who do not even believe in God, make fun of the second coming, but I believe that there are numbers of people who sit in the pew on Sunday morning who really give little or no thought to what God has declared will be a reality. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, as far as I know, up until the last few years, a thief would not call you up and tell you, I'm going to rob your home 2 o'clock tomorrow night. Well, the point of it is, we do not expect our Lord to come. We don't think about it. A lot of times preachers don't preach about it. It has become passe or old-fashioned. But the clear communication of the Spirit of God that there will be a time when our Lord will come back. And it is the responsibility of a biblical preacher, though it may be out of focus, it may not be of interest, yet it is the teaching of of the Word of God. Of course, we're living in a day when thieves announce that they're coming. You know, they just walk into a store, and as long in some states as they stay under $1,000, they can take your stuff. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway. I think sometimes it would be good to go back to the old days when a merchant would open his store and he says, this is my stuff. And if you come in and take my stuff, I'm going to demonstrate how well my shotgun works. <laughs> but you see, the point is that we're living in a different time. We're living in a day of rampant malignant lawlessness. And I say that because... We are living in a time that is different. All the time I meet people, lay people who will say, these are unusual times. These are different times. We've never lived in a time like this before. And the Lord's word says that the Lord will come in an hour that we think not. In Matthew 24, the whole chapter is devoted to knowing the signs that will precede the second coming of our Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. I'm not here to tell you, nor should any preacher say, they know when the Lord will come. But I do know that there will be a day when the Lord will come. And since we are living in the last days, and we have been living in the last days for 2,000 years, if God is true to his word, then we're nearer to the second coming 
than we ever have been. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. And then in verse 42 of Matthew 24, therefore, he says, keep watch. Matthew 24, Jesus compares the coming of our Lord to the days of Noah. If you were to read that good chapter, and I encourage you to do that sometime, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he goes on to say a few things uh, how it was like in the days of Noah. He says they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Now, he is not suggesting that those things are wrong. That is not the point of the text. He is saying that people will do what people naturally do. We eat, we drink, we marry our children, and we give in marriage. And therefore, it is in that context of living life, of going about the regular routines of life, when we least expect it, Jesus will come again, as in the days of Noah. And keep in mind that for 120 years, Noah, that man of God, being commissioned of God to build an ark, and for 120 years, he spoke of the wrath and judgment of God to come. You remember in that lesson, the Bible tells us that God says, it repents me that I am sorry that I have made man because of the evil that comes up before me. He commissioned Moses to build an ark. And Moses preached that judgment was coming. No one listened to Noah. And today, as preachers stand in the pulpit, many people dismiss the biblical preaching as nonsense. Today, we are kind of in the course of preaching sermons that make us feel good, like, I'm okay, you okay, and we're kind of psychologically oriented into sermons today. But we must not forsake the foundational truths of Scripture. In the plan of God, there will be a day when Jesus will come again. And I know some of you are thinking, well, preacher, the Bible says that the Lord is coming again. But you preachers have said that generation after generation after generation. Well, I have a verse or two that I want to read. I have it written in my notes, but I rewrote it because I wanted to quote it precisely. Peter is the author of his books, First and Second Peter. Those were third-generation Christians who were under persecution, and they were concerned about the Lord's coming. But let me tell you what Peter wrote to them. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, now listen to this, I'm quoting the Bible here. They will say, where is the coming that he promised ever since our fathers died? 
Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And then in verse 8, he says this, But do not forget this one thing, friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now look up here and pay attention. Sit up straight and smile. We, according to the economy of God, God God does not live in time. He is the God that is above the past, the present, and the future. God is eternal. And with God, a thousand years to us is a long time. But to holy God, it is like one day. That's not only taught in the New Testament, There is one psalm in the Old Testament that Moses wrote, Psalm 90. And Moses addresses God and he says this, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or a watch in the night. Now if you were to look up the word watch in terms of the teaching of the Bible, a watch was a soldier would stand on guard for three, maybe four hours. Moses saying, God, in your sight, three or four hours is nothing or a thousand years to you is like three or four hours. And so I'm saying to you, for our tendency to make fun and to take lightly the teaching and the preaching of the second coming, remember that a thousand years in the sight of God is just today. It's as if in God's economy and in God's mindset that he ascended back to heaven in the person of the sweet Son of God, Jesus Christ, just last Friday. Here it is Sunday. Two days have passed in the way God counts time. And so I say to you, we're living in the last days. I am not saying that our Lord will come even this year or next year. He may come today, but we who are the people of God need to know that not only will he find people who are not expecting him, but he will find people who are not prepared for his coming. The Bible tells us in verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, a couple of things are being said here. First of all, that he makes this comparison to the coming of the Lord to a a woman who is pregnant. When she goes into labor, what does she know? When it's legitimate labor, she knows that the birth of her precious child is coming and near and is around the corner. He makes that analogy because in the last days, there will be certain signs One sign is malignant lawlessness. In the last days, people will have little thought of God. But he says something else. People will be saying in these last days, 
peace and safety, but destruction will come on them suddenly as labor with a pregnant woman. And then he says, and they shall not escape. What is he saying? There will be a judgment when the Lord comes. Not only there will be the rapture of the people of God, people who have put their faith in God, people who have trusted in the blood of Christ, the dead in Christ, according to the Bible, will rise first. Then if we happen to be alive, we will call, be called up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Behold, both the goodness and the severity of God. I believe as a preacher, my responsibility is to clearly delineate that when you preach on the love of God, and the Bible tells us that God loved the world. The Bible tells us that God is love. And I believe and depend upon the love of God. But I have not preached the whole counsel of God. If I do not remind you that not only God is a God of love, but God is a God of wrath. Now listen to me. Romans says, behold, the goodness and the severity of God. And when you get to the book of Revelation, at least five times the Bible refers to the wrath of God. There will be a God who loves us. There is a God who died for us. But folks, sin requires judgment. And at the coming, there will be people who will not be prepared for his coming. People will not expect it. People will not be prepared. One of the great preachers of Protestantism was a man called Jonathan Edwards. He was, in fact, at one time, the president of Prince, what we call Princeton University. He was a man of keen intellect. He was one of the great theologians of Christianity in America. And he had a sermon that God used to bring people to Jesus Christ. Now, this former president of Princeton had a sermon. Now, remember, Harvard and Yale and Princeton were all started as training grounds for preachers. It occurred to me one time that today Harvard does not preach as much important truth or does not teach as much important truth as a little school called Christian Heritage Academy. More important truth is taught at that little school than all the universities combined that deny the Word of God. Now, I know you think I'm an old fundamentalist. I just believe the Bible, and I believe God's Word is true, and I believe one day Jesus is coming again, and he will resurrect the saints who have died. We will be called up together with them in the air. And those who remain, who do not know God, who have laughed at God and made fun of God, they will experience the wrath of God. Amen? Therefore, we must be ready. 
And in the second part, I say to you, we have a direction for God's people who live in the last days. How do we escape the wrath of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Oh, folks, there's nothing more important than any preacher in any age and any pulpit to always have as the central focus of his preaching that Christ died for our sins, that we who are the people of God must come to Jesus Christ through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We do not go to heaven because we've been baptized. We do not go to heaven because we've joined the church. We do not go to heaven because we try to be as good as we can. We go to heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then in verse 4, in speaking about the directions for God's people, those of us who have been washed in the blood, that is a metaphorical state, but meaning that because Christ died on the cross, because I have repented of my sins, I have received the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, he said, but you brothers, and by the way, let me pause right there. When the Bible uses the term brothers, that also means sisters too. Now that's important in the Greek because you see, in that day it was patriarchy. Everything was centered around the men. I know that wasn't the thing that is today, but nevertheless, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day, talking about the Lord's coming, this day should not surprise you like a thief. In other words, those of us who have been washed in the blood, those of us who have trusted Christ and the Savior, we dare not make fun of the doctrine of the second coming. We dare not neglect the truth of the second coming. We must be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Be ready. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make your calling and election sure. That other words, be sure that you have been washed in the blood of Christ. Be sure that you know your sins have been forgiven. Be confident in the fact that on the day of your death and on the day of my death, our confidence is in what God has done for us at the cross of Jesus. Peter, in writing to the brothers and sisters, said, Make your calling and election sure. God's Word tells us to do two things. First of all, be ready to meet the Lord. Secondly, be sure that in His coming that we are serving the Lord. In a week or two, you will turn over a brand new leaf. 
you will have a new pastor. And I, 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 I saw him there. He's a handsome dude. Yeah. I mean, he ought to attract people just because he's so handsome. But my point is, we need to be working for the Lord when he comes. Don't be sitting and soaking, but working because, you see, there is the need for us to walk in the Spirit of God and work for the glory of God. Everything we do at this church ought to be for God's ultimate glory. I don't know when Christ will come, but I know that we're living in the last days, and I know, according to the Word of God, one day Jesus is coming again. Now, you see, a thousand years in our sight, oh, it's just a day with the Lord. Our Lord, according to His calendar, left us on Friday. Today is Sunday. Two days, but the Lord is coming in the last days. And so as you turn over this new chapter, I, I, I admonish you not to be like what the statistics say. You say, well, preacher, what does the statistics say? Well, I'm going to tell you that 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. 20% of church people do 80% of the work. I pray for you. I try to pray every day for Pastor Trevor. I haven't mastered his last name, so he's Pastor Trevor. But I try to pray for him, and I try to pray for you. There are you, some of you sitting right here that for years I've prayed for you every day. There are some of you who are facing struggles in your life. And by God's grace, I've endeavored to pray for you every day. And I will continue to pray for this good church. But keep in mind, one day, Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that as a church, we'd be ready and awake and alert, expecting you to come. Father, we know that our calendar is not according to your calendar. And we ask today that if there's even one person here who's not sure of their salvation, or if there's someone here who's carrying a particular prayer burden, that that would be presented to you. Oh, Lord, glorify your name, and may the name of Jesus be praised. In Christ's name I make this prayer. Amen.